Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a 10-part series providing an insight into the challenges of creating and growing a business. The theme of this episode is risk-taking. This is particularly apt for Tristram and Rebecca Mayhew, the husband and wife team behind the treetop adventure business Go Ape. Fifteen years ago, they were working in well-paid executive jobs, but they wanted to move out of London, where they thought it might be easier to combine their working lives with raising a family. What they lacked was a business idea. Then, during a holiday in France, they spotted a leaflet for an outdoor adventure park, so they went to take a look. I spoke to them at their latest venue in London's Battersea Park. We were visiting some friends and we saw a leaflet and we just went, we need to go and have a look. It looks brilliant. Mm. So we did. What was it that was attractive? Well, I had been specifically trying to focus on areas which I thought I would naturally enjoy. The outdoorsy stuff, people-based businesses I thought I'd be good at. And for some reason I'd been thinking about doing something in forestry. And this was a forest-based activity of the pamphlet we saw. And when we arrived in the part of the National Forest in Auvergne, in southern France... We came across a very small car park with only two or three cars in it, but we just heard laughter trickling out of the woods. And we walked rather Hansel and Gretel-like into the woods, and we saw a family group of two teenagers, a 15 and a 12-year-old, and their parents. And of course the 15 and the 12-year-old were having a great time swinging through the trees. But it was their parents, it was the look in their eyes, and you could see that they hadn't had this much fun in years. And Bex looked at them and said, look, we should be doing this. It's a massive undertaking. You're talking about taking over forests. How did you make that happen first? Interestingly, and rather sadly, that course closed down because although it was a fabulous course, it was in the middle of nowhere and no one could find it and it just wasn't commercially viable. So we came back to the UK and we had two nuts to crack. One was, how could we get it open? Because what about all the health and safety stuff? Surely it wouldn't be allowed to happen. High ropes activity, you could fall off and hit the ground. And I tried to find out who were the safety people who could say yes. And the Royal Society of Prevention of Accidents had a really great attitude. They said, actually, we're worried about the country becoming too safe and that people aren't learning how to live adventurous lives safely. So we'd like to back you as long as you build it really well and train people really well. So that was surprising and great. The second thing was trying to find insurers who would insure this thing that had never been done in the UK before and clearly was a high-risk activity. And I thought, well, I'll ring up Lloyds of London. But Lloyds of London is like an ant hill. It's got a thousand ants, and you've got to find the right ant that will you know, insure your sector. So that was a big ask, and I asked everybody I could possibly use, and eventually found someone who took us on. And that was a eureka moment, because I was supposed to start a new job in Barcelona on the 15th of January, 2001. And our insurance came through on Friday, the 12th of January, 2001. So I didn't go. Wow. So you got the cover, you were surprised maybe that this was actually sort of welcomed. 
What about the land? So having realised that actually you need people to make it successful, it's not just about trees. And I thought, well, what do we really need? Well, we need car parks and loos and good quality coffee. And we had this really clear picture. We didn't want to be paintball, i.e. sort of containers and portaloos and all rather grim. So I plugged in Forest Visitor Centre into Google. Well, it wasn't Google in those days. It was probably AOL. And... Um, we were lucky, it was just at the beginning of the sort of internet and search engine revolution, really. And up popped 40 locations with a Forestry Commission's name on top. So I found out an address and said, can I come and pitch to you an idea? I can't tell you what it is, but I think it's a new uh, leisure activity that you'll be excited with. And I took a video of the safety system we had in France. I'd spoken to the French people and said, would you build for me in the UK? And went to the East Anglian district of the Forestry Commission and play them the video. And during that meeting, three people who I'm still very grateful to said, this is the big idea that we didn't know we were looking for, and we'll give you a three-year lease at one location in East Anglia. But I said, that's great, but it isn't enough for me to chuck in my job in Barcelona. What I need is a multi-site agreement that if the first one goes well, that I can do the next four. And they said, well, we can't give you that. So I went off to Forestry Commission England, and I pitched for it. I wanted to at least 10 years, so I asked for 21, thinking they might whittle me down. And they said, if you do five within four years, so you go quickly enough, mm. we will give you a first right of refusal across the whole of the Forestry Commission estate in England for 21 years, plus an additional five years bonus, so 26 years. Goodness, so that was the deal. Well, what it meant was that if both sides were happy with the first site running well, then we had the next top sites secured by name, which was like getting the best locations of high visibility. And we got fantastic sites, which already had hundreds of thousands of visitors already going. So we physically built above the busiest parts of the forest so that most people would see us. So that the day we opened, we'd been building for six weeks and people were already queuing up to go on day one. So you had this idea. Someone else had done it, though. And were there not big challenges? Well... I was surprised that the French constructors didn't want to have a piece of our business, but they didn't know that we would do a good job operating it. So they said, we'd rather just you pay us for the course and we'll give you a starter pack and you know, turnkey operation, off you go. I'm delighted that that was their case because we own all our business. But there are a couple of things which I think come down to good businesses being based on good relationships and strong businesses being based on strong relationships. And that lesson was loud and clear to us when we first started. We went to our French suppliers called Altus, and they were basically a bunch of guys who were trying to do their own thing. They were mountain men, geese and snow guides, and they decided they wanted to build these amazing systems up in the trees using their alpine guide skills. And the cost was about €100,000, and we sold Rebecca's flat to pay for the first course, or part fund it, and that was going to take three months to sell. So we went to the bank and our bank said, yes, we'll give you a bridging loan. It should take six weeks to clear so that I could pay the instalments of the construction. Right. And uh, at the end of the first six weeks, the instalments coming up and the bank said, oh, no, it hasn't still going through credit or something. And I had to go back to our French suppliers who were building in Thurper Forest and say, look, I'm sorry, we can't pay you. And they said in bad English, look, we can't live off thin air, but I hope the money comes soon and carried on working. Goodness. And as a result, if they hadn't, and if they perfectly reasonably said, look, we'll come back once you've got the money, mm. we would have missed opening for Easter, which would have been critical in terms of cash flow. And we would probably have gone bust before we even started. 
So on a handshake, with no contract, the French just took us on. And as wow. a result, we still use them to build all you know, 50 of our courses that we build subsequently, because they still do a great job. And it's still on a handshake. And they also gave us an exclusivity. So as long as you keep ordering a course every year off us, we won't build for anybody else in England. And they were the best in the world. So we had them tied up as well, which has been fantastic. But if we look back at what we did, it probably was you're doing three courses, three more courses in the second year. And I'll never forget being in hospital about to give birth to our second child. And you're not supposed to be on the phone when you're in hospital, are you? And it was constant phone calls. We had three courses being built to open the following year. And uh, it was chaos. It was absolutely chaos. But all of those, the first four courses that we did are still four of our most successful ones. So, you know, it worked out. Hindsight is we stretched ourselves quite thinly. But, yeah. um, but we got away with it. And, and with can it. we say it was the wrong thing to do? I don't think so. Because actually it gave us a national footprint. And we were trying to look much bigger than we were. Because we were terrified about competitors coming in with deeper pockets and just sort of sewing up the market. But people believed our brazen PR. So we said we were going to do 20 courses within five years. And people believed us. So other competitors said, well, actually, we thought we'd do it in Australia. Because we, you know, we couldn't compete against you guys. You were going to do 20. We had no idea how we were going to do it. But actually, just by saying it, put the competitors out, but also got lots of people saying, oh, they're going to do 20, perhaps they'll come and do one with us in our woods. And we got really strong talent applying for us, because they said, well, if you're going to have 20 sites in five years, you're going to need 20 managers, so I'm going to come and join you now so I can get in early. It was incredibly powerful. <laughs> John Mullins is Associate Professor of Management Practice in Marketing and Entrepreneurship at London Business School. I asked him about the difficulty of starting a business outside a major city. A lot of people think you have to go to the city because that's where the money is, where the people are, where the uh, wide array of skills are that you may need for the kind of business you want to start. But sometimes it's actually beneficial not to do that. And there's some very interesting advantages if you're not in the city. So why would that be so? Well, those resources in the city that you want are wanted by everybody else too. So it gets very expensive sometimes to get the space you need to house your people or to, to pay the people or to compete with other people so they'll come work for you. And while everything's there in the city, often it's quite a bit more expensive. Some kinds of businesses require very specialized resource that's only available in some places. And if that's the case, you have to go there. But for most businesses, you need smart, innovative, hardworking people who can learn. And the cities have no monopoly on smart, innovative, hardworking people. And in fact, often outside of the cities, you can find um, superior work ethic and people who are thrilled to have a job at a young, vibrant, fast-growing company that's going to make a difference in the world, and they'll give it their all. GoApe is now an international business with over 40 sites spread across the UK and the US, employing over a 1,000 people. I asked Tristram, whose business card now describes him as Chief Gorilla, what lessons others might draw from his experience. There are some transferable lessons we've learned. One was that in the second year, when we went from one course and then opened three more in the second year, so we had four courses all around the country, I had asked our bookkeeper and we had a an accountant we used to go and have chats with once a month on strategy. I said, will we have enough cash to get through to the summer where we make most of our income? 
And I went, yes, 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 ooh, no, you won't. So at the end of May, we wouldn't have been able to pay the wages because six weeks before the summer, we ran out. And that was really because we had forecast all the next three on doing as well as the first course had done. But one opened late because of planning delays, and one didn't do quite so well. So we based our plans on just one data point, and rather optimistic because that's our outlook. And so through cash flow mismanagement, we nearly went bust. But thankfully, my grandfather had just died, and my mother (laughs) had got 60 grand, which she transferred to me, which I paid back six weeks later, and that kept us afloat. And within about two weeks after that, we got our first FD, but a really good one on one day a week, rather than the bookkeeper on five days a week. I'm not trying to blame the bookkeeper. I didn't really ask enough. but I think the lesson was get really good finance advice if that's not your strength. Next time, we'll be looking at how one company protected its intellectual property from international copycats. If you want to catch up on previous episodes of FT Startup Stories or read more on entrepreneurship and business education, go to our special page, ft.com forward slash startup, or go to ft.com forward slash startup offer if you would like a 25% discount on a subscription to the Financial Times. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.